Welcome to another episode of Energy Talks. I'm journalist Markham Hislop. This podcast is all about interesting conversations with energy and climate experts from around the world. And don't forget to follow us on social media, on Twitter, at E-N-E-R-G-I Media, and my personal handle, at PoliticalHam, on Facebook, facebook.com slash energymedia. Energy.media is our website, where you'll find Markham and Energy columns, news stories and op-eds, and the Energy Student Resources Portal, a wiki-style collection of our work that's free for high school teachers and university professors to use in their classrooms. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. Mark Cameron, Executive Vice President for External Relations of the Oil Sands Net Zero by 2050 Pathways Alliance, was recently in COP, in, in Egypt for COP27. So I'm going to talk to him about his experiences there. So welcome to the interview, Mark. Thanks. Great to be here, Markham. Now, you no doubt saw some of the coverage of the oil and gas uh, industry being in COP27. There was some criticism of that. Um, why did the Pathways Alliance, uh, you know, why were you in COP27? What did you do and how were you how were you received? Sure. Well, I think there's a bit of a misconception. There was a couple of articles saying that there was, you know, 600 oil and gas lobbyists at COP. And I think the impression given is that that people were there trying to water down government's positions in the negotiations, et cetera. That really has nothing to do with it. I mean, COP is a a really massive gathering of about 30,000 plus people. Uh, and a lot of them are really there to share information and learn. Uh, we were there to talk about carbon capture and storage, talk about our own net zero commitment, learn from what's going on in other countries, uh, learn what's going on, whether it's in Australia or Africa or China, and just you know just to compare uh, compare notes and compare ideas around technology and, and where this is going. So. What was the response? I mean, uh, you were there primarily to talk talk about CCUS because CCUS seems to be the industry's uh, main strategy in the sort of medium to long term to reduce its emissions. Uh, and did you talk to have a chance to talk to other countries yeah. and, you know, about CCUS? Uh, yeah, I mean, I'd say that CCUS is probably the main strategy in the short to medium term. In the long term, there's other technologies. But yeah, we were talking to people from around the world and in different sectors, whether steel or cement or uh, fertilizer about you know what they're doing and what's going on in India, what's going on in Africa. Uh, it, so CCUS is definitely something that has a lot of momentum, not just in Canada, but around the world. And I think it's really seen as part of any viable net zero solution has to include a, a large quantity of CCUS. Now, there's a, a fair amount of controversy about CCUS being applied to the oil sands, uh, one of which is the, you know, the, the, the ask from governments, uh, primarily, I guess, Alberta and, and the federal government for funding to to uh, you know, help pay for that, uh, and especially because the, the oil sands companies are so sure. profitable at the moment. Where are we at with that in negotiations, and what kind of funding are we talking about here, Mark? Well, there's really a couple of things that are, are being uh, discussed. First of all, there was the investment tax credit that was announced by the federal government a couple of years ago, which they're working towards legislating uh, sometime this year or early next year. 
then then there are discussions with Alberta around the royalty system and how that would apply to these kinds of investments. Uh, you know whether they'd be inside the ring fence, outside the ring fence, etc. Um, then there are other programs like the Net Zero Accelerator that are open to other industries, but you know, we would certainly hope to participate in those programs. And then the, the big remaining question is how long-term credit pricing would apply to uh, the oil sands, CCUS and the oil sands or other industries. And that's where you get discussion around ideas like contracts for difference. So it's really a combination of all those things uh, that would have to fall into place to make these investments uh, viable. But you know, what, one thing I would say is that we're all around the world where uh, these kinds of investments are, are happening or being considered there are there are you know usually substantial government involvement in the U.S. The 45Q tax credit, which was recently expanded with the Inflation Reduction Act, that is at least double in value what the investment tax credit is worth in Canada, and and the uh, the amounts that have been given to the Longships uh, program in Norway or the Porthos project in the Netherlands are you know two thirds to three quarters of their costs, both capital and operating. So what what we've been uh, talking about with the federal and provincial government here in Canada is really no different than anywhere else around the world. Oh, okay, fair enough. Uh, but I think uh, you know it could be argued that in Norway, for example, Equinor is uh, involved in that in a big way. But they're also owned by the government, and they also have a one trillion dollar sovereign wealth fund that they can tap to pay for yeah. those in a way that Canada uh, can't. Uh, we never had that. We don't have that. Doesn't even and even the Heritage Fund in Alberta is not, you know, anywhere near that size. So. Let's talk about numbers because it wasn't that long ago. It was in 2021. A couple of your CEOs uh, said very publicly that this was likely to be a $75 billion project out to 2050, and they'd hoped the government would, would cover two-thirds of it, so $50, $50 billion. Are those still the kind of numbers we're talking about? I mean, I think when all in, that's probably uh, the ballpark, but but that includes the entire project. So that includes things that we haven't even developed yet, like small modular reactors and, and uh, direct air capture and things like that. But that's that's the aggregate project out to 2050. But that's the scale of investment that is required uh, if we're actually going to achieve net zero in the oil sands, which is you know one of one of Canada's largest emitting sectors. Right. Well, okay. So do we know that the oil sands industry can actually be competitive by 2050? Because it, let's just hypothetically here, the federal government, mostly maybe some Alberta government uh, money comes in, It's fifty. it turns out to be $50 billion. And worst case scenario, the oil sands are not competitive and they either have to cut, you know, shut production in, stop uh, producing from different projects and essentially you have stranded assets not only the the producing assets now you have the infrastructure assets like you know the carbon capture equipment the pipelines the and where wherever you're going to bury this stuff uh what's your take on that well i mean if you look at the the oil sands industry and the amount that it's providing to the canadian economy overall it's about a trillion dollars per decade and if we were to simply gradually reduce that to zero between now and 2050 rather than 3 trillion dollars of gdp it would contribute only about 800 million dollars of gdp 800 billion dollars rather gdp so that's about a 2 trillion dollar gap and that's you know regardless of what happens after 2050 even in between now and 2050 
uh, that's about a $2 billion gap in total GDP. And that would you know, apply to Alberta royalties, it would apply to federal income tax, would apply to employment. Uh, it, it, so, so you know, a $75 billion investment to secure $2 trillion in economic activity is actually a pretty reasonable bet. And then, you know, we don't really know today what the size of the oil market will be in 2050 and beyond. Is it going to be 25 million barrels a day? Is it going to be 50 million barrels a day? Or what it will be used for? You know, will it still be used for transportation or will it be used for other things like asphalt and petrochemicals and, and, and other products? Well, we don't know because nobody knows the future. And uh, as we know from Russia's invasion of Ukraine, things can turn on a dime. So fair enough on that. But the uh, I know that you know your members have modeled. You got you companies have internal modeling that dem, you know give, provide the scenarios out to, different scenarios out to 2050, and and it shows that the oil sands can be can be competitive. But you don't share that that modeling with the government, or certainly not publicly. So. It's hard to have this conversation about whether the industry is going to be competitive or not competitive when, you know, the Americans model like crazy. I mean, they model everything. And and that information is publicly available and it's made available to policymakers. Will the oil sands companies make their modeling available so that we can, you know, check the assumptions, that sort of thing? Sure. I mean, this is a tricky question. A lot of those models are proprietary and we don't even share that within pathways. So, you know, Suncor and Imperial don't necessarily have the same modeling. We have aggregated modeling that, that we use, but we're not, we're using sort of publicly available information and so on. And we have discussed that uh, kind of information with government and you know, probably at some point we would, we would make some of that modeling uh, publicly available, but you know, right right now, these are pretty closely held uh, discussions between federal, provincial government, and industry. So. Okay, okay, and, and, and I mean, we have argued at Energy Media. I have argued in columns that you know, to make the kind of decisions, the, the investment decisions, or the funding decisions that industry is asking of government, that the government has to have all the information available to it. So, and 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 voters, I I would argue, need to, should have that information too, so they should know whether they support the government's dis- decisions or not support them, and and so that would argue for more transparency and making those that modeling available or somebody else funding somebody else to do that, an independent third-party economist to do the modeling, just so we we can talk intelligently about these things and then not as hypothetically as we are sure. now, at least people like I am, because we don't have it. Okay, well, look, um, so we're we're at the point now, Mark, where the you've made the argument for the 50 billion that it's a, because it enables so much production and so uh, such a high contribution to the national economy that it's it's in best interest to uh, for the federal government and, and the Alberta government to fund CCUS for the for the oil sands but isn't this just kind of like a, a preserving the status quo i mean what else can be what else can the oil sands industry do if you get carbon capture utilization and storage? What about the U in that in that uh, equation? Well, I think that is one of those things that we're looking at in the 2030s and beyond is what are the other potential uses of bitumen? And, you know, uh, Alberta Innovates has a big program on bitumen beyond combustion, which we're very interested in. Uh, so we're certainly looking all the time at what are the products. We're looking at the potential products with with captured carbon. Uh, that would be an awful lot of Coca-Cola to put all those carbon bubbles in. But, but you know, we're, we're certainly looking for what the opportunities are there. Okay, so... Uh, within the oil, the uh, oil sands industry, so there's you know four big companies and one smaller company, Meg Energy. 
of those companies, Suncor has invested in, you know, in startups like Entercam and Lanzajet that use captured CEO, or, sorry, captured CO2. Uh, but the other companies don't. So when you say we're looking at this, what do you exactly mean? Sure. Because th now this, I just want a little background, a little context for our, our viewers. The European major oil companies are going at this in a big way. Suncor is doing it in Canada in a, you know, sort of a, a smaller, but okay, we'll give them credit for that. But the other companies aren't. So are, are we talking about a change in attitude by those other companies, Mark? I mean, I guess I would I would uh, dispute the characterization. I mean, Suncor has done a, a lot of really positive things, but I think you can look at, uh, you know, CNRL and Synovus and Imperial are all investing in various kinds of uh, clean tech or uh, startups or or investments. Uh, there's a big, you know, biofuels project that Imperial is working on. Synovus is a partner in Evoc Innovation. So, so there's there's lots of examples of where all those companies, I mean, collectively, uh, those companies have put ten billion dollars into R and D in the last ten years. Uh, One point eight billion dollars to develop over a thousand technologies through COSIA. And that certainly represents all of the companies within within Pathways, uh, not just not just one of them. Right. Okay. Fair enough. But Cosia, I mean, the, the the technologies that were developed partly through Cosia are, are are mainly around increasing the efficiencies of of, of production, uh, solvents uh, substitution. Uh, you know, uh, sure. technologies for uh, the tailings ponds. I mean, on and on and on to make them to make the the companies more efficient, lower lower their production costs. Most of them were not. Uh, looking ahead to energy transition issues, sure. what we can do with CO2, et cetera. Well, I mean, COSIA actually has a pretty active climate and CO2 uh, side of its of its operations. But in uh, solvent technology, uh, it can be used to improve efficiency, uh, but it can also be used to reduce emissions. So, so you know, there, there are technologies that are are dual use sometimes by by being more efficient you can also be be less polluting and, and there's definitely you know there's a lot of energy efficiency and electricity electrification projects going on again across across all the companies that would have that dual effect of both improving operations and reducing emissions okay so what percentage of emission reduction and i we should point out that the pathways alliance if i understand this correctly mark has committed to 24 megatons out of the 70 it, it emits every year 24 megatons of emissions reductions by 2030 if i got that correct well, 22 is, is the target 20 22 I'll, i was being a little generous to you come on yeah. now. uh okay so 22 and and ten of those that we know are going to come from Suncor because Suncor is already committed to that to that publicly. So twelve from from the other companies. Is that going to if it's not CCUS, what else? What other technologies are they going to bring to the table to reduce those sure. emissions? I think in the pre twenty thirty period, uh, it'll be probably you know ten to twelve uh, megatons through CCUS, and the rest would be a combination of uh, energy efficiency electrification. Uh, solvents that reduce uh, the steam the steam production and therefore reduce the natural gas used in producing steam uh, and, and uh, fuel switching like uh, the the coke boiler replacement the Suncor is doing all all those collectively add up to the twenty two megatons. 
Okay. We're already, we're just on the cusp of 2023. So we basically got seven years left in, in this decade. Uh, is the timeline too tight? That, that's one of the arguments I've heard is that, sure. is that these are big companies. These are huge industrial operations. They don't turn on a dime. They don't produce, uh, they don't, uh, they don't make investments quickly. Uh, so is, I guess the question is, is there enough time to hit the targets by, by 2030? It's a tight timeline. There's no question. Like we would have to submit a regulatory application to build the pipeline from Fort Murray to CO, to Cold Lake by late next year. Uh, we'd probably actually have to be procuring uh, pipe or at least reserving it by uh, early 2024. So these are very tight timelines, which is why the discussions with government around uh, whether it's the, the the financial issues or the regulatory issues are really crucial. But uh, if everything falls into place, yes, we can do it by 2030. But it is it is going to be a a tight a tight crunch. Well, what do you need government to do more quickly? Is it just the policy and the regulatory piece? What do they need to do? I think it's you know it's a combination. I mean, it's the things we just talked about, whether it's the contract for difference, uh, uh, the discussions around royalty, et cetera. But we also need to have a really clear uh, regulatory regulatory timeline. If we were to apply for the pipeline in sort of late 2023 and got approval by, uh, you know, uh, late 2024, then we or or 2025, even mid 2025, we can probably make our our construction timelines. But if that delays into 2026 or 2027, then it, you know we, there are some projects that don't actually require a pipeline that are further further south towards the sequestration hub. But we would not be able to do the projects that rely on the pipeline if we can't get the pipeline approved. Okay, final question, Mark, and this is kind of a big one. Uh, but the, you, I'm not asking you a question you haven't been asked a thousand times, but I think it does need to be asked, is why should the government pay when the oil sands companies are incredibly profitable? And by their own in their own investor presentations, they, they talk about how much more uh, – uh, room there is to drive down their production costs and and drive up the amount of free cash flow that they're going to produce. And I mean, they're pretty profitable. So why should the taxpayer be on the hook here if the companies can afford this yeah. themselves? Well, I mean, as, as you know, it's a, it's a very cyclical industry. In 2020, all of these companies were losing money uh, and it, we're in kind of an unusual situation with the combination of the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine and, you know, lack of of new new large uh, greenfield projects happening. So you've got a, you know, a bit of a, a bit of a bubble right now that it won't necessarily be the case in three years or five years. Um, but, you know, governments and therefore the people of Alberta and Canada are in many ways the biggest winner of uh, of growth in, in the industry. Uh, it's estimated that our companies will provide $50 billion in total to governments this year. So, yes, they're extremely profitable for their shareholders, but they're also extremely beneficial for the people of Alberta and Canada. And in many ways, the Alberta royalty system already acts in some way as, as a bit of a windfall tax because as companies achieve payout, which is happening more quickly, uh, th then, uh, you know, obviously the royalties jump. So we're seeing bitumen royalties jump from about, you know, $1 billion to about $15 billion in the space of a year. 
Okay, I, I want to push back a little bit on the the argument that this is a cyclical industry. Uh, yes, global markets have been have been cyclical, but if you look at the amount of uh, investment, uh, when investment in in exploration and, uh, and uh, production globally fell off a cliff uh, and uh, around 2015 2016 is a third of what it was and uh, I don't know how many analysts I've seen saying that if if that doesn't pick up then there's going to be a a, a shortage of the market's going to be tight going forward would would mckenzie thinks that we're going to have you know 80 to 100 dollar barrel on oil all all decade long maybe into the 2030s that's not an uncommon view <laughs> And it seems like this is not business as usual. We're we're into a new era. Things are different. And, and I'm not sure that I buy the argument anymore that, well, this is cyclical. We're going to have losses two years from now because that's the way the industry's always worked. You know, I don't know. I, I'm not convinced well, of that. It, it, it was only two years ago that we were talking negative values. You know, within the last decade, we've talked about, you know, peak oil. I mean, like all these conversations come and go. Uh, I have no idea what the market is going to look like in 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 ten years or twenty years, and it, it, you know really what we want to be able to do is to be the best producer possible, whether it's a twenty five million dollar twenty five million barrel a day market or a hundred million barrel a day market. We want to be the the uh, low emissions, low cost, reliable, democratic provider of oil, no matter what the size of the market is that we're that we're dealing with. Okay. Is the industry competitive at 25 million barrels uh, a day? I mean, by 2050, I'd I'd hope we would be. Uh, it, you know, it'll it'll depend. That, but there's an awful lot of water that has to go under the bridge between now and then. But if we are, if we've made these investments in decarbonization and we're producing essentially net zero oil uh, in an affordable way, then I would think that this you know Canadian oil sands could be a premium product that people will want to buy. So it's it's cost it's carbon competitive. So we'll say by 2050, we'll give you the benefit of the doubt that you have decarbonized uh, oil sands production. Uh, and in fact, the market uh, I was just looking at it, interviewed the Bloomberg uh, NEF's uh, head of oil analysis the other day, and uh, road uh, trans demand from road transportation is going to decline quite a bit. But aviation and petrochemicals are forecast to to, to rise, and so and heavy oil now gets. Uh, uh, used in petrochemical plants in, right. in Asia. So that might very well be the case. And your own, the companies in, in the Pathways Alliance say that they're driving their production, their break-evens down to anywhere from between $25 and $35 a barrel. So it looks to me like it would be competitive in a 20, I mean, maybe. Uh, okay, so if, if you're arguing for a long-term future for the oil sands, and and carbon competitiveness is part of that. I don't know. That sounds to me like the industry should bear a bigger percentage of the costs here. Well, I mean, obviously that obviously that's a discussion that that we're having. But it, but you know, I think there's no question that investments that are purely in, in decarbonization that aren't uh, contributing to additional growth or or sales. Uh, it, you know, there's there's got to be some. There's a public interest in that, and I think there's also a public interest in the long-term competitiveness of this industry. And what what exactly the percentage is is obviously something that the federal provincial government and industry are all going to be talking about. I, I guess the other thing I'd add is there's a really important uh, First Nations component here, and and we'll want to see you know increased uh, First Nations involvement in in these kind of projects going forward as well. 
Yeah, we'll come back to the First Nations on, an, on another interview. Uh, we've covered a lot of ground in this. I really appreciate the information you provided, Mark. So thank you very much for this. Thank you.